friend. Yeah, it is kind of hard to follow up on those video announcements. Uh, we have amazing talent in this body, and a lot of you guys are hiding your talents. And I'll encourage you to let us know the wonderful things that you love to do, that you enjoy doing, and that you're excellent at, and uh, for the glory of God and to benefit the community. Um, because I didn't know that uh, Michelle and Jen had those wonderful acting abilities. Uh, <laughs> so well done. Thanks. <laughs> uh, we have um, a little bit of family news to announce. Uh, you know, we saw all these beautiful children that came up to the front to get prayed over, prayed over, and this church is growing. Uh, we've had uh, organic church growth as of from yesterday. Uh, Jennifer Deggett gave birth to her little girl, Elliot Ruth. And so she, yeah, awesome. Baby and mom are doing well. Baby's healthy. And uh, pray for Andrew. First, first time being dad. <laughs> Should be wonderful and a joy uh, for that. So yeah, keep them in your prayers uh, as they begin this new season of their life, uh, growing exponentially uh, in that. Uh, how many of you lost power this last week in the storm? Oh, come on. Really? That's it? Wow. I'm on the wrong grid. <laughs> I lost power. And the storm this past week actually brought to my attention the amount of comfort that I have in electricity. Yes. All right. I know it's not having it caused me actually a lot of uneasiness and anxiousness within me. When would it be on? Will the food that we just bought yesterday, is it going to go bad? Is it going to last? As my wife, who is constantly cold, will, she be, will I be able to help keep her warm? Will my children be able to survive the cold? And so on and so on. But one of these truths that I was reminded about was not to be anxious about anything. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 tells us, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice what it says here. The peace of God. That the peace of God is found in our obedience to him. When we find ourselves starting to be anxious, recognizing that quite possibly that next moment we're going to completely freak out. <laughs> Scripture tells us that as soon as we recognize that, to acknowledge that anxiousness is to get into prayer. Then the calm serenity, part of God's character, will come to you, guarding us just as a soldier stands guard. So take heart to what it says. When we do this, when we obey the word of God, what he tells us to do, there is a gracious response from him. So we should not lean on our own understandings. Don't keep flipping through Facebook trying to figure out when the power is going to come on. Don't keep looking at PG&E outage map about when the time is going to come on. First and foremost, pray. This is our imperative. Do not be anxious, but pray. And through our obedience, God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. But this promise is for those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. For it says this guarding will take place in Christ Jesus. Because ultimately, obedience is what God desires of us. Not outward expressions of religion. Not just doing good works to make ourselves feel better. But to actually obey what he has already told us in his word. So I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 4. 
in verses, we'll start in verse 17, right smack dab in the middle of the chapter, which is never a good idea <laughs> to begin with, but you'll see, I'm trying to make a point. So Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through 21, and as you scroll, flip, turn, or look behind, I don't know if we got that, I don't think I gave that to you, Mike, sorry. In Romans 4, 17, we're in a series called Foundations. In order to understand what we are reading, we need to have those foundations established. And this passage is a great example of that. For if taken just by itself, just reading 17 through 21, would we have any idea of who is being talked about, what is being referenced? So let's keep that in mind as we read this passage, Romans 4, 17 through 21. And I'm reading from the best version, I mean, sorry, the ESV, the English Standard Version. As it is written... I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, he gives life to the dead and calls, calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So by reading this passage alone, just those few verses, I don't believe that we can fully grasp what is being said, because context is so vital to our understanding of Scripture. But it's also vital to us to understand who God is what he has done for us, and what he will do for us, and what he has called us to be a part of. Continuing on in verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, a foundational element as believers in Jesus Christ is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. That at that precise moment that we believe that Jesus Christ died on our behalf, paying our penalty, which is death, and that he rose three days later, that when we believe that, in that moment, we become justified. In an instant, we are declared to be in right standing in front of a holy, just, and righteous God. And the foundation of what's being declared to us here in Romans chapter 4 has its foundations in the book of beginnings. The book of Genesis chapter 17, to be exact. So we are going to continue on our journey through the book of beginnings as in our series of foundations. If you turn, flip, scroll to Genesis chapter 17. If you recall, the passage that we just read in Romans begins with, It is written, I've made you the father of many nations. What this is pointing back to is here in chapter 17, it points back to the man that we've been introduced to as Abram. In 17 verse 1, it says, And Abram was 99 years old. So at this point in our narrative, Abram has been in the land for 24 years. Abram has had 13 years of waiting since chapter 16. It's been 13 years after listening to the voice of his wife and to not of his God. It's been 13 years of raising his son Ishmael. The God who created the heavens and the earth now speaks to Abram 
Yahweh, it says, our text says, and, and, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, if you notice in your text in your Bibles, you may see the capital letters L-O-R-D. What this tells us is that this is revealing to us the very personal name of God as Yahweh, the only eternal one, the one it means to be. But pay attention to what it says here to Abram. The author of Genesis tells us that it was Yahweh that spoke, but in this very first speech, God actually reveals himself as God Almighty. Just a note here, there is only one true God. His nature and his character are revealed to us through the names by which God gives himself to be known to mankind. The God of the Bible is the God who names himself. Recall that the very mysterious individual, Melchizedek, knew God as El Elyon, God Most High. Hagar knew God as El Roy, the God who sees me. And these accounts, these names that God has given to us to understand who he is should really give us great comfort that the one true God is truly a personal God, not someone who, that is so far off, but one who is so close that can truly be intimately known. It's not until we see that the burning bush experience that Moses had where God reveals himself to him as Yahweh, but what we have here is what the author of Genesis is doing. It's telling us who is speaking in the narrative to give us some context. Since the author who wrote these words is further along in redemptive history, that he, as well as us, now have the privilege of knowing God's personal name, Yahweh. So in the name of God, God Almighty, is said, people usually have one or three responses of the, when they hear the name God Almighty. They typically profane it. They make it common. Not in some celebratory worship, but an exclamation after a very unusual event. Sometimes it's in the sense of fear. Not in the sense of reverent awe that we are called to out of scriptures, but of being absolutely terrified and scared of and try to hide from him. Another response, and should be one of ours, is assurance. Leading the individual to worship and adoration based upon the character of God revealed in his name, God Almighty. God Almighty, or, or in the Hebrew, is El Shaddai. And it points to God's complete power over absolutely everything. In Scripture, God reveals his name in this covenant, which includes a multitude of descendants from a barren woman. We'll see in this covenant further on with Isaac, that Isaac's wife, is barren as well. And God reveals himself as who other than El Shaddai. And we'll see later on with Jacob as well as he confirms his promise to all the children of Abram that they will be God El Shaddai. As God Almighty who has all the power, all the riches, that is who he is. But if we fail to grasp this, I fear that the understanding of the nature of God that's revealed by his name would lead us to trust him little if we did not understand who he is by his name, El Shaddai. Therefore, resulting us in not giving him our full and complete obedience. How much of our sin that we commit, those things that we do that are missing the mark of what God has called us to do, that we commit is founded upon low thoughts of God. 
When temptations arise, our prayer is that we would all grasp, including myself, and cling to the truth that resides in the name of El Shaddai, God Almighty. For if we do grasp this amazing truth about God as God Almighty, the all-powerful one, the all-sufficient one, then we should find ourselves trusting him in every single aspect of our lives. Not worrying about anything, not being anxious about anything, but wholly trusting him because we can know him. We know that Abram has already known God. For this is not his very first encounter with the living one. For we have seen that Yahweh called Abram to leave his country and go. And Abram immediately heard and he obeyed. We've read in Genesis chapter 15 that Abram believed God. And it's this belief in God that gives Abram a right standing before him. And this belief in God takes place 14 years prior our narrative here in chapter 17. So what we see here is a result of Abram's somewhat less perfect patient obedience, but obedience nevertheless upon God, on the one who promised him a future son, a land, nations, and kings. God Almighty then now calls Abram to walk and be blameless. This phrase, walk and be blameless, should aid us in recalling another time when this statement has been made in this book of beginnings. In Genesis chapter 6, it said that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then we read further on that God makes and establishes a covenant with Noah. So when we see this walk and be blameless, this should give us some sense of anticipation, some sense of excitement of what El Shaddai is going to do. It should be on the edge of of our seats. God is calling Abram to walk before him and be blameless. Blameless in that he is to live his entire life in such a way that is in the presence of God continually, under God's authority, for his glory, in every aspect of our lives, and his life. Abram is to live his life out as a living sacrifice, not out of fear of punishment from El Shaddai, but out of complete surrender and utter adoration of him. Abram's walk is like ours, as we are called, to be wholly committed to God in all aspects and not in any fragmented manner. This call upon Abram is very similar to the greatest commandment. If we recall, Jesus said that the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Part of the greatest commandment is first to acknowledge who God is. And here we have acknowledging God as El Shaddai the Almighty One. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and all your strength. That is how we are to walk. And how are we to be blameless? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment than these. El Shaddai continues speaking, saying that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. This word verit in the Hebrew or covenant is used 13 times in this chapter alone. 13 times in nine verses. Should give us a clue as far as what is the actual importance of this chapter. Recall back in chapter 12, God said that he would make Abram a great nation. Chapter 16, that Abram's children will be counted as like the stars. And what this is, it just shows the beauty within Scripture the majesty and the 
awesomeness of God's word, the complexity that's all within it, that's found within it. You see, the whole narrative of Abram's story, from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 22, guess what sits right in the middle? Chapter 17, showing us that this is the pinnacle moment of Abram's life. This is what we should all be paying attention to. This is what we should be all excited about. I can't... I, I don't have enough adjectives to describe how beautiful and amazing God's Word is. He uses these literary devices to help direct our attention to all those aspects of his redemptive plan, and they truly, truly are magnificent. And we won't know about them unless we don't spend our time in it and spending time in his word to understand who he is. And as we go through this later, through this covenant made by God with Abram, we find out that this is an everlasting covenant made and kept by the grace of God despite the multiple recorded failures of Abram himself, but also the descendants of Abraham, to observe the conditions in which God has established. But yet, in his grace, in his mercy, in his magnificence, El Shaddai keeps his end of the covenant. Abram's response is found here in verse 3. And Abram fell on his face to humility before El Shaddai. As soon as Abram knew what he was going to experience here, I'm sure he probably knew another covenant-making ceremony was going to take place. But this is Abram's first recorded response. There's no response in words, proclamations, just utter worship. After 13 years of waiting, I encourage you to think about what is your first response to God? especially as we gather together as believers to worship God? Is it for us to get something out of him primarily? Or is it a time when we gather as a community to abandon ourselves, completely abandon ourselves to the worship to, of the one who spoke creation into existence, who always says what he's going to do and always follows through? Is that the reason why we gather? El Shaddai continues on in verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God's grace completely put on display, for God has chosen Abram, not because of Abram's faith, not because he would end up obeying him, but because God chose him. God chose him from the multitudes of people that were sent scattered out from the results of Babel in Genesis 11, because the people wanted to do what? They wanted to make a name for themselves. So what does God do with his chosen person, his chosen man? In verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. That is what Paul is referring to back in Romans chapter 4. I have made you the father of many nations. This is the man Abraham. But when did Abram believe? At what point in the narrative that we've gone through so far that God, that Abram believed in the God of the promise? Was it at the time that, that God called Abram to leave his country and leave his family and go to the land that he was promised? Was it when Yahweh, the God of Israel, asked Abram to lift up his eyes and look at the land at the point in which Lot separated from him? Was it when God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, came to Abram in a vision and said, I am your shield and your reward is very great. 
Did Amon believe that for Yahweh, the God of Israel, took him outside to look at the stars and told him, so shall your offspring be? It seems at that point, as the word tells us, that Abram then believed Yahweh, and Yahweh counted it to him as righteousness. It's the faith of Abram, not of any of his works that put him in a right standing before El Shaddai. Notice what it says here, that Abram will not just be one nation as promised in Genesis 12, but a multitude of nations. And as a guarantee of this promise in God Almighty, El Shaddai changes Abram's name to Abraham, meaning a father of a multitude. And again, the beautifulness of, of the ancient language is in Hebrew. There's a bit of wordplay that's done in the sounds of his name. Abram, father of many, is Avram. But Abraham is Avraham, is the father of multitudes. Again, just showing the beautifulness of Scripture. Notice that the multitude of nations is mentioned twice. Abram was told back in Genesis 13 that his offspring will be like as the dust of the earth. In Genesis 15, the offspring will be like the stars of the sky. Very similar to a heaven and earth motif, both physical and spiritual. For there will be physical descendants of Abraham, and there will be and are spiritual children of Abraham. Galatians 3 tells us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and accept him as Lord as your life, you are included in this promise. Verse 6, El Shaddai says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Part of God's plan for mankind was to be fruitful and multiply. This is what he told Adam, to be fruitful and to multiply. But compare what God is telling Abraham, who will now do this? El Shaddai, God Almighty will. God is the one who will make him fruitful. He is the one who will make him to multiply. Kings will come from the line of Abraham. This is seen in the covenant further on made with David in 2 Samuel 7, ultimately and fully and beautifully realized in the king of kings, the king of Judah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Verse 7, El Shaddai continues saying on, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will make an everlasting covenant. How could anyone else other than the eternal one make something that could last forever? God is revealing his nature, his character, not only to Abraham and to his descendants, but also to us as we read his word, read the word of God. And what is spectacular here is that God is promising not only to be God to Abraham and him alone, but also to all of his offspring. Verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See, the people in the land of Canaan, the land that Abraham had been sojourning in, have been given a long time of God's grace and mercy to repent. These people had been in the land for so long. Reveals a bit more about our God. That God is slow to anger. 
But yet he will deal with sin. He had given the people in the land a long time to repent, but they did not. Israel, when they were finally in the land, they too had sinned for a very long time. But yet God was patient and displayed his chesed, his steadfast, faithful love to his people. Coming through the prophets who were there warning them to turn from their wicked ways. And yet they did not. And the people then were taken out of the land. Taken out of the promise of the land. Which is seemingly such a small strip of desert in the Middle East. But the promise is from God to the people that he chose. To the descendants of Abraham. And to look at the people of Israel today. I believe, is one of the greatest apologetics that there is a God. There is no reason why, in the natural, that the people of Israel should still be here on this face of the earth. Why there is even a nation of Israel. It all attests to God's greatness and His grace and His mercy. There is a... No, I'll continue. I'm sorry. And God says, I will be their God. God Almighty will be the God of Abraham's descendants. And this is incredible. Through the grace of God, he has chosen a people out to be his own. He called out Abram, again, right after the scattering of the nations. And God says, through this one man, through him and by him, I will be their God and they will be my people. The promise of the land given back in Genesis 15 is where the boundaries of all the of the, pro- uh, the promised land are outlined. And now God is telling Abraham, and by us, by extension, that those who believe, again, that this is an everlasting covenant. His promise of the land is an everlasting covenant with him and through, by him and through, to his people. And in the end, it's not a matter of if the Jewish people will occupy the full extent of the boundaries of the promised land, but when. The prophet... Amos tells us in chapter 9. And the context of Amos is right about the, the height of uh, the ancient nation of Assyria and the fear that would be resembling as a destruction from Assyrian coming to take the people of Israel because they had sinned. But in that, as they are getting ready to be displaced, God says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins. And rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Plowing in Israel takes place usually in October or November. And the reaping of the harvest takes place in April or May. So it's talking about the overabundance of the land, that God is going to bless the land and bless his people. The treading of grapes, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Those pressing of the grapes typically happen in the fall, in August or September, and sowing of the seed in November and December, again showing the overabundance that God will give and bless his land. The promised land will flow with milk and honey once again. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And God says, I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, 
says the Lord your God. But this promised land, the land that God has promised to his people, is but a type or a shadow of ultimate true reality. For we are told that the land points to something far greater, something far better, something that we could hard to even comprehend or understand, as the author of Hebrews tells us, as a land and a country that resides that will give us eternal rest. And that day, we don't know when it will come, but someday each of us will come to that point in which we die, and God will either say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter now into your rest. And I pray that you would see and understand and comprehend the significance of this, that you would grasp on to the Lord Christ, Amen. cling on to him as he is our only hope, our only assurance. We're never guaranteed anything in this life. We now come to the most important aspect of this chapter, verses 9 through 14, the pinnacle point of this narrative. And we see the power and the grace and the beauty of our God Almighty put on display. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. To make in a covenant is literally to cut an agreement. And this means to make the terms of the covenant here with Abraham is actually very tangibly real in that sense. For circumcision was the act which establishes the covenant between Yahweh and Abraham's descendants. Circumcision was practiced by the Egyptians, we know, and the Canaanites and the Arabs. But yet the origin of this practice to those other people groups is really obscure. Scholars have no idea where it came from. All it said is that our forefathers did it. But God takes that and uses it for his own as the sign of his covenant. We do know that the Philistines didn't practice this. If we recall David's word about that giant Philistine, Goliath, he said, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And the time in which Another, well, it's another story. When David goes and gets a whole bunch of other foreskins from the Philistines as a bride price. But just attesting to that this is a practice that some and some didn't. <laughs> Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Notice what it says here. The sign of the covenant. It is to remind God's chosen people that they are to walk blameless before God. It is a permanent marking of the flesh of the eternal promise. Circumcision in the flesh is not the covenant, nor is it the essence of the covenant. True circumcision, which it points to, the true reality, what God desires of us is that our hearts and our minds would become circumcised. For God is always after our heart. And circumcision of the heart can only be done by the one who created your heart. And this circumcision of the heart is solely based on God through the work of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy chapter 30 says, And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Circumcision of the heart is really what God is after, not the outward expression of a believing community. Circumcision of the heart involves us 
throwing ourselves at the mercy of God, availing of his love and accepting the conditions of his promise. And this promise really is available to anyone. Verses 12 to 13, El Shaddai continues saying, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Real interesting note here in verse 12, about eight days of age. Uh, it took scientists a long time before they realized the truth and the awesomeness of God's creation. Because at eight days of age, an infant has the highest levels of vitamin K in their system. It starts to decrease after day eight, but day, days helps it, helps the baby and the body to not start clotting with blood after they were cut. Very interesting. But notice who's included in this. Both those born to Abraham and his, his direct bloodline and the foreigner who is not of his offspring. And this is absolutely incredible because that affords us that opportunity to be part of this. Hear what Paul says in Romans 4. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. This is incredible. Guess what? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are part of that household of faith. You are part of the promise that God Almighty, El Shaddai, gave to Abraham. Be counted amongst his people. El Shaddai is your God. Recall that when two peoples cut a covenant, they cut pieces of animals and they separate them, and then they walk arm in arm through those animals, proclaiming that if either party of this covenant, of the, making this agreement, if they break any part of that, let them be like the animals that they just walked through. For there are expectations when covenants and agreements are made. In this case, when God is making his covenant agreement, God will, we know God will always keep his promise. And, but there is a response of mankind. And if he fails to keep this sign, verse 14, El Shaddai says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Verse 15 gives us another name change in the establishing of this covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Sarah, whose name means princess, means all the kings of the earth will come. And the ultimate king will come through that line. The king of kings the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. Verse 17, then Abram does the most important response to what God has told him. In this promise, he falls on his face. And then he laughed. And he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? 
Recall in our passage that we started this off with in Romans 4. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Notice there's three things in this verse. The astonished Abraham worships God by falling on his face in awe and laughs, but not in unbelief, but in faith. And laughs. That phrase, those words, is what the very name means. Isaac, the promised son Isaac, means it and laughs. And as he responds to God, the one who revealed as God Almighty, the one who can do anything, says, can a child be born to a man? <laughs> it did. It happened. This promise given to Abraham is given to his yet future-born son. And this marks a foundational element to the redemptive plan of mankind. For it's through his son Isaac comes the nation of Israel and the 12 tribes. This promise that God gives Abraham is for them. God Almighty gives to Abraham a people, a land, and a promise that God Almighty will be their God. And there is that permanence to the promise, for he says this is an everlasting covenant. Again, repeated throughout the narratives, as we read about, it's said to his offspring again, to Isaac, and it's said to, his, to Jacob. Hence have you heard that common phrase, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For he had made an everlasting covenant with them. He will not change who he is. God will deal with sin, for he is holy, he is just, and he is loving. Amen. And when the people rebel against God, they suffer the consequences of not obeying him. God said the promise of the land, God Almighty, will be their God. That promise is everlasting. For we see that the promise does not depend upon mankind, and I thank God for that. The eternal promise is solely based upon the God of Israel, El Shaddai, the one who sees, Yahweh. Verses 18 and 20, we have Abraham's response to God. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. He shall call his name Isaac. I've established my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful, multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. Notice that phrase, Ishmael, I have heard. Again, this is another play on words in the Hebrew, because back in chapter 16, God said, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The details in the text are so numerous, I'm really afraid that we're only really able to only scratch the surface of it this morning. But again, we see that God is revealing his nature through his promise. For we see that the promise to his son Ishmael is fulfilled a couple chapters later in Genesis 25. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and their encampments, 12 princes, according to their tribes. For if God were to fulfill a minor promise to a son that's not the chosen one, how much more so will he fulfill the greater promise of his chosen people? the promise of the land, and the promise of a son, and the promise to be their God. Verse 21, But God Almighty said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. Again, God promising. This time next year, God reveals his nature through his promise once again. Recall how old Abraham was, was 99. Sarah was 90. Abraham doesn't, ha Abraham doesn't have to wait another 13 years 
to see the fulfillment of this promise. For we read what happens in this next year before the promised son. We can read that in chapters 18, 19, and 20. That all covers one year in duration. However, we have to wait three weeks to get through those. But to give you a spoiler, chapter 21, four weeks from now, the perfect timing of God is revealed in his fulfillment of the promised son, Isaac. It's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. The beauty of Scripture. Jesus made this statement in John 8, 56. We can't be certain if this is really what Jesus is referring to, but Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and, it, and was glad. Could it be that when Abraham fell on his face and laughed, that he saw the promised child. He saw the seed that was promised in Genesis 3 of the skull-crushing Redeemer seed that he saw Jesus Christ. We don't know, but could be. Verse 22, And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of the foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Again, time and time again, we see obedience is what God is after. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Abraham, we see, obeyed immediately. You see, Abraham believed in God. And God had credited his faith as righteousness, righteousness before he was circumcised. Abraham's faith in God is not based upon his act of circumcision, but upon the faith in the one who commanded him to be circumcised. And Abraham did this in faith, based upon the character of God alone, who revealed himself to Abraham in his interactions, in all throughout this, in this cutting, in this marking of the flesh that he, done, he did in obedience solely based upon who God is. That is why it's reiterated here in verse 26. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. That very day, another small phrase, took to the terms of the covenant, and Abraham made that decision to obey, thus marking himself in a way that demonstrates who he is pledging his allegiance to. In this wording, that phrase, this very day, should again remind us of some very significant events that took place with that same phrase. Genesis 7, that very day, Noah, in obedience, entered into the ark. Exodus 12, that very day, in obedience, Israel left Egypt on the night of Passover. Each of these significant events in redemptive history are marked by man's response. In each of these cases, Noah and Abraham and the children of Israel demonstrated their obedience on that very day. So on this very day, who or what are you ultimately placing your faith in? This life that we have today can be taken away in a blink of an eye. This world that we know it is not all that there is nor will ever be. For there is life after death. But the fact that life after death does not mean that everyone will go to heaven. We all will continue to exist after we die. God has made it clear that he will make a distinction between the resurrection of the just those who are in Christ Jesus, and the unjust, those who die in their sin. For the prophet Daniel proclaimed, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. 
Everlasting life is only given to those who have a right standing relationship with God, available through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith cannot be in your works or anything that you can do to prove yourself worthy in front of El Shaddai. Faith is the only way. Faith in God through Jesus Christ. And as a believer, you may be asking yourself, well, why should we obey? I believe so I can just go on doing what I do in my life. Why should I obey what God has called me to do? Do we obey to earn his favor? No. Do we obey God in order to have a painless and carefree life? No. We obey because it's our appropriate response to who El Shaddai is. We should obey God based upon his name, Yahweh, who embodies his grace and his mercy. So if you could please stand. And may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen.